As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, welcome back to another installment of the Wide Right Podcast. I'm Manny Navarro, Miami Hurricanes beat writer for The Athletic, joined once again by Carlos Ledo of the MIA All Day Podcast. It's Sunday, the day after the uh, Bethune-Cookman game, Carlos, and, uh, you know, Miami went out and did what it was supposed to do. They uh, they handed Bethune-Cookman a 70-13 to defeat, I thought, outside of a few defensive mishaps and the fumble by Tyler Van Dyke on the exchange with uh, his backup center. Really not a lot to criticize in terms of an execution standpoint. Um, As I wrote in my column for the athletic today, you know, my takeaways from the game, uh, I thought, uh, I thought overall the offense, I mean, nine out of 10 drives, they scored touchdowns. And and the one they didn't was the, uh, the fumble. So they they should have scored on every drive, which is what I wanted to see. Good debut for Josh Gaddis on that side, and 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 you know really the the, the breakdowns on um, on defense are things we've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think regardless of the opponent, it doesn't matter sometimes. You know who you play; it's just assignment football, right? It's covering the running back out of the backfield. It's uh, making sure that you that you get in a good position to make a tackle and don't let a guy slip through your fingers. Those kind of things that we that we've seen in the past, but that's a work in progress. That's not going to be fixed overnight. So. Um, and special teams, I thought was great. You had a block field goal. You had Keyshawn Smith with some good returns. Uh, I know I took most of the material, but you can tell me being a football guy, guy who played quarterback, uh, at the high school level and being a fan for a long time, what were your takeaways? Well, first and foremost, uh, TVD was a surgeon out there. He was decisive. He was, uh, you know, crisp. You wanted to see that out of him. We, we talked about a lot during the preseason going into this year about what's going to happen when the deep ball is taken away from him. And you saw Bethune play a lot of cover four, a lot of deep coverage, giving him a lot of stuff underneath. And he just took what they gave him. And he was making the right reads all day. Um, he was really efficient with the football. He was really accurate with the football, which was good to see. Um, him and Restrepo you know, for that touchdown, you know, it was a beautiful play with, with Restrepo running that double move. Um, the patience shown by TVD, the beautiful fake, and then throwing it right to where he needed to be. Restrepo fighting the sun to get that ball because that was uh, right in his sight line, the sun at that point. 
I thought it was an excellent performance by TVD. I thought he ran the, the offense incredibly well. He was smart getting rid of the football when he needed to, didn't take any sacks. Um, I thought the offensive line was fantastic. I thought their run blocking was great. They got a lot of push. Uh, Henry Parrish really didn't get touched in the backfield a whole lot, and either Thad got hit a couple times but kept breaking tackles. Um, I, I thought their ability to get push up front and really protect the quarterback, they only had, I believe it was four pressures all game. Mm-hmm. Um, Bethune Cookman and no sacks, which is incredible. That's that's great on 67 snaps. I think it was total on offense. Um, the defensive line I thought looked good uh, on occasion. They got a little maybe overzealous and, and tried to get to the quarterback a little bit too much, getting out of their lanes. We saw that with Nigel Lee Kelly on one of the scrambles by the quarterback, where he collapsed the pocket, but rather than maintaining outside leverage and contain, he tried to push it all the way inside, and the quarterback just ran right around him. Yeah. Uh, on that touchdown where Keontre Smith. Uh, basically missed a back coming out of the backfield on the wheel route. I ended up watching it today, and it seems like he was blitzing as well. James Williams came, and he came right after James Williams. But since there was nobody else left on that side of the field, he needed to check the back first before continuing on the blitz, a blitz path. So he got – we reacted late, came too flat, and that's where the back came around on the wheel. Um, you know, DJ Ivy was, you know, just doing DJ Ivy things. Um, <laughs> lost on coverage a couple of times just not willing to tackle anybody being in the wrong spots, wrong angles, you know, tripping up his own defenders, getting in the way of making tackles. That was tough to watch. Um, I thought the linebackers were okay. I thought Corey flag had his moments. Um, he's a, he's a real good blitzer. And every time he blitz, he, he really got in there and, and uh, disrupted plays. And although they didn't blitz that much, I think they might've blitzed seven times total a game, which is nice to see, which is a shift from the Manny right. Diaz era where the, he liked to blitz a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, Caleb Johnson looked good. He looked athletic. Um, he still needs to settle in and learn the defense a little bit, but I think he's going to end up being one of the starters down the road, uh, and be a, a big impact player on the team overall. I mean, it's, they did what they had to do, man. Um, there's a lot to talk about if you want to talk about it in terms of getting to the nitty gritty of it. But overall, I think they did what they needed to do. The first team offense should have scored on every possession. If it wasn't for that fumble, I think, uh, you know, the second team as well. I like the way Jake Garcia looked operating the offense. Um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of bad to talk about and this the way it should be when you're facing a team that was two and nine last year in FCS. Yeah. Right. You, you, you filled it out pretty well there. Um, with the descriptions, we can go position by position and talk a little bit about snap counts and stuff like that. Um, I want to get into the rest of Miami's schedule because obviously, we, like you mentioned, this is an FCS program. I mean, they had some good players. I thought their quarterbacks were pretty fast and elusive. At times, they made Miami's defense look slow. Um, but, you know, Bethune-Cookman always has athletes. Uh, it's the question of can they ever put it together, right? Um, I mean, FAMU was a good team last year. They were 9-3. and three, So it's not like Bethune hasn't won in the past. They haven't figured things out. But this is the kind of opponent. To me, it was the kind of performance you wanted where it was decided – and there weren't many negative plays on offense. I think that was the key. I was more worried about the offense than I was the defense, especially after everything I heard about the defensive line. Uh, they only ended up getting two sacks in this game. But, you know, uh, part of it, I think, was they weren't, like you said, showing maybe a whole lot in terms of pressures and exotic blitzes and things because they're saving it for down the road. Um, but we can get into a lot of different stuff. Um, like I said, future opponents uh, are on Miami's schedule. We have a mailbag we're going to talk about later in this podcast. If you're, if you're listening to this on uh, SoundCloud or Apple Podcast or whatever, we're going to play the my interview from last Wednesday with our Texas uh, expert, 
Sam Kahn of The Athletic. We talked about Texas A&M since that's the game everybody's really looking forward to. He gave us kind of an early taste of A&M. A&M went out and uh, beat Sam Houston 31 to nothing yesterday. I know people are like, well, Sam Houston, it's an FCS team. It should be more than 31 nothing. But the reality is, I mean, Sam Houston won the FCS championship a couple of years ago. And yeah. they're, they're on the way up to the FBS level. So nothing to uh, just kind of dismiss or anything like that or, or take it as a sign that A&M uh isn't good so uh, that'll be on later in the podcast as well as our mailbag but i want to start with this uh expectations because I, I feel like that really dictates the conversation every year right it's what we expect to happen in year one i ran a poll pre-game carlos on twitter and again this is twitter right so what, what are we doing a great cross-section of america here but hey right, but, but we did get 1,258 votes. And I basically laid out four selections and said, you know, what's going to make you happy this year? Minimum results, right? Like you you have to have this in order to be happy as a Miami fan at the end of the season. Uh, Coastal Division title, one out, 65.3% of the vote. ACC title came in second with 20%. Um, the other two selections were eight wins, which is more than last year. We got 12%. And then seven wins, which is matching last year, 1.6. Um, so ultimately... I mean, wow, reasonable. It's it's what that was reasonable. I thought yeah, ACC reasonable. championship would have been number one, but hey, look at the fan base. You yeah. guys, we're coming <laughs> along, man. We're we're evolving here as a fan base, and I'm loving it. Yeah, a little bit. I'd say a little bit. Um, I do think people were a little bit too freaked out about the big plays, and I, as I wrote in my story for the Athletic today, and my takeaways, it was basically nine negative plays on defense where they didn't yeah. do their job. Right, six passing, uh, three three rushing, the three you know, three runs uh, by the, by the uh, three sc- scrambles that were more than 15 yards by their quarterbacks that, that changed the, the field position. And, and then the six passing plays, which really most of them happened in the first half that, that opening series, you saw a couple um, where you had Cam Kitchens missing a block. You had DJ Ivy missing a tackle. I mean, not Cam Kitchens missing a block, but missing a tackle in the open field. Um, but I, I thought the, if there was one like scene and you can agree with me or disagree with me, but the one scene that I thought told us all that, hey, this is a different regime is when Cam Kitchens made that diving pick, man. And you know yeah. what I'm going to talk about. I mean, Mario ate him alive, him and the defense. He got everybody around Kevin Steele and was like, hey, you can't spike the football. You can't get a 15-yard penalty on this because that's different when we play a good team, right? When we play a game that matters, you can't have this. And I thought if ever a moment to just show you the difference between Manny Diaz and his leadership and Mario Cristobal's leadership, it was that because Mario ultimately has a bigger vision for everything. And, and, it, and to me, more than anything, it, said, it just reminded you why the turnover chain isn't around, why those kind of expectations are different because you could celebrate interception, you could celebrate a fumble, Carlos, but in the end, it really doesn't mean anything if you're not winning on the field. And, and I right. think Miami was winning that game. We knew it was going to be a blowout. And right then and there, Mario's like, no, 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 bro. Different era. Yeah, it's, and it's a teaching. It's taking that moment and using it as a teachable moment. Um, and, and it's, you know, giving up the, the instant gratification, the short-term success, the, the short-term hype that would have come along with it. Because right there, then and there, the first thing they would have done is run to Cam, have him take his helmet off and slap the chain on him. And he and did. Him, stand he, up he, and, and, him and Tyreek Stevenson ran up and, and, and jumped on the bench and stood up and like right. waving to the crowd. 
Yeah. And it, it's almost like they forgot the turnover chain was gone for a half second. Like they, right. they and then until, they realized, until Mario oh, got up in their ass. Until Mario <laughs> got up in their ass. It's like, hey, get off the bench. We don't do that shit here anymore. Okay. And it's and it's giving up that instant gratification for the long-term success because, like you're saying, what if that happens at Texas AM? You get an interception at a key moment in a game. And now you give up 15, 15 yards and that sets you back where you might have been in scoring position. You have to drive to score and win the game. And instead of being at the 45 yard line, now you're back to the 30 and you have to climb even further with time expiring. So those are lessons that are, are great to be learned in, in games like this. You want to learn those in games like this against Bethune, against uh, Southern Miss, Middle Tennessee, where you know the outcome is going to be in hand because you don't want that creeping up in games that really matter an ACC player against a team like Texas A&M. So right. it was great to see. And I think the other great thing to see was the way Mario handled it at the press conference after the game, where he said, you know, Cam's a great human being. He's a great football player. He's a great guy. He got caught up in the moment. It happens. We just have to teach him that this isn't the way from now on. And he's got it. We're not worried about it. Right. And, and, and I think that was important. It shows you how far Mario has come as, as, a, as an adult, right? And as a human being, right? Growing, he's 51 years old. Uh, I think hot-blooded Latin Mario Cristobal 15 years ago maybe goes in on the kid in the post-game press conference a little bit and says, you know, but he immediately, like you said, uh, said, hey, he's a good person. It's a teaching moment, et cetera. So, but, but really, I mean, that's the start of the, the Mario area. That that's the that's the image that's going to stick in my mind of hey, this is a different regime. Um, all right, we're like I said, we're going to get into how Miami's future opponents did and the mailbag, but some good, some other good slash takeaways from this game. Number one, no drops by the receivers. I mean, that was such a big storyline in Camp Carlos that they were dropping balls left and right. You mentioned being able to throw the ball deep. Um, I counted when I looked at the quarterback information. Um, I think it was like two 20 plus yard passes by TV. I think it was right. But he was four of four on throws, 15 yards down the field in the air. And, and Jake Garcia was one of one. So five of five for them, no drops. I mean, they didn't, they didn't go down the field much. Five times is not a lot right. um, where you're throwing the ball down the field. Um, but that was important. Um, and the big one was, uh, wasn't even like a deep pass down the sideline. It was a deep crosser to Restrepo where he caught it right. a lot. And right 52 yards. Yeah. Um, the other thing, only six penalties for 48 yards. We know how much penalties were a big deal, obviously, last year for this team and in the last several years. Three on each side of the ball. Kobe Young, the new uh, receiver, got called for a block in the back that negated a touchdown. Um, you had an eligible man downfield, Will Mallory, which I still don't understand. If he's the tight end, I guess it's just where he lined up. Yeah, he, he lined up uh, incorrectly, and that's why he, was, he wasn't eligible to come down the field. You had a false start on Dominic Mamorelli, the tight end, and that was going to be a trick play where Ja'Curry Brown had come in and they were going to run something special there just to make other teams have to practice that probably for the rest of the season. <laughs> and then defensively, you had the Kitchens unsportsmanlike conduct. He got called for a pass interference where he got to the – to the. Yeah, I thought that was a little touchy there. Yeah, he, he may have gotten there a second early or a half second early, but it wasn't blatant. Yeah. Um, and then you had the delay of game on Daryl Jackson, which I don't know what that was for. Um, but maybe the substitution, you know, whatever. Um, but really, I mean, not a lot of self-inflicted wounds from a pen penalty standpoint. That was good. Um, anything else that we didn't cover yet that you saw as good? Yeah. I mean, one of the, or, or at least interesting, I think uh, one of the things that I saw also was that they didn't give up a lot of uh, negative plays um, in the run game. Right. Uh, so they only had, so the, the PFF has a stack called stops where it's a, where the defense makes a tackle, that's a negative play for the offense. 
Uh, Bethune-Cookman was only credited with five of those the entire game. And that doesn't necessarily mean it was a tackle for a loss. It means it was a zero to one yard gain or something of that nature. So that's a, that's very little uh, considering the, an entire football game. Um, the only offensive lineman, uh, there was only one, two, three, four offensive linemen that had under a 70 run blocking grade. And for people who don't know, 69, 69 is average uh, with PFF. Correct? I think 60 is, 60 is the average mark. 60 is the average mark. Okay. So we were well above that as a team. Uh, only Matthew McCoy, Lawrence Seymour, Jalen Rivers, and Jonathan Dennis had the lowest 70. And those guys, the lowest scoring one was Jonathan Dennis at 65.8. So it wasn't bad at all. Um, right. Only one offensive lineman under 70 in pass blocking. That was Ja'Kai Clark at 69.2. So again, they did an excellent job in that area. You know, it, it just seemed like a different offense. I think Henry Parrish looked very good running the football. I think he was very patient setting up his blocks and knowing what to accelerate and hit the hole. He's, he seems to me like a thicker, stronger Jalen Knighton uh, with a little bit less explosiveness, but he's really good out of the backfield catching the football as well. Really patient, good vision. I like what I saw out of him. Uh, you know, Thad ran the ball very well. Like I said, he led the team in yards after contact. Thad Franklin had 57 of his yards after contact. He averaged 6.33 yards after contact, which is amazing. Um, Henry Parrish had 50 after contact, but was only averaging 3.5, 3.6 after contact. Um, defensively, I thought Mesidor looked really good. I thought he was uh, the one that popped to me the most on the defensive line in terms of being steady um, and impactful. Moultrie looked good to me as well. You know, Leonard, Leonard Taylor, before he got hurt, was, was being very impactful on the defensive line. Uh, it was nice to see Frierson get that interception for a touchdown, get that pick six, be in the right spot. So again, like we're saying, it's, it's, it's a lot of positive things, but again, we have to also factor in the opponent. So we didn't learn a whole lot. It's just nice to get them out there, get the kinks out and get ready for the next one. Seven missed tackles for Miami as a team, two for Cam Kitchens, one for Chase Smith, one for Avante Williams, one for Jared Harrison Hunt, one for Ivy and one for Al Blades um, total. So look, seven is a lot better than in the thirties, which we saw last year against yeah. Michigan state. Um, there were, and there were other games that it was over 15 and, and they weren't, you know, great opponents per se. Um, and offensively, one more, one more stat offensively, which mm-hmm. has been plaguing the Hurricanes for the last five years. Uh, they were seven for seven on third down on offense. Yeah, that was that was good to see as well. Um, we mentioned the no drops by the receivers, the penalties we hit on, special teams we hit on. Um, other observations: James Williams um, was in the box for twenty of his forty snaps. So we talk about you know him playing the linebacker spot again. They will never call him a linebacker. That's not what he wants to be known as, or at least this year. But he was in the box for 20 of his 40 snaps. He, he obviously had a great read on the pick that he made in the second half where you could see he was watching the quarterback and, and, and jumped at the right time to go get that ball, um, baiting him a little bit to throw that ball there. Um, some other things. Keyshawn Smith didn't have a pass thrown his way. Um, there were 10 receivers or 10 players who caught passes. We talked a lot about two tight end sets and running backs and their involvement in the running game. Um, the tight ends had six targets in the game. Uh, every, every single one of them, Mallory had three, Arroyo one, Skinner one, uh, and Khalil Brantley one in terms of the, the guys who you would expect to get the ball thrown their way. Mamorelli played, um, but in the end, six targets to them, three to the running backs. Uh, Henry Parrish had those three targets out of the backfield. Uh, so nine out of the 22 passes that were actually intended for receivers, um, you know, for pass catchers went to running backs and tight ends. Um, what else? Um, I could sit here and go over snap counts and who started. Obviously, Miami went with the two tight ends, Arroyo and Mallory in the starting lineup. The receivers were Restrepo and Ladson. Um, well, I've, you know. I've got one thing uh, in terms of scheme offensively that's that's interesting. Uh, 
Go ahead. So um, we talked a lot about, like you said, with with them using more tight end sets and using more. Uh, we talked about using a tight end as an H back in the backfield, along a fullback in the backfield. Mm-hmm. The 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 gap run to zone run percentage. So gap run meaning pulling offensive linemen, power uh, pin and pull blocking schemes, as opposed to zone runs. Yes, was thirty gap runs to ten okay. zone runs. So seventy five percent of the runs were gap runs. Last season, the Hurricanes averaged 68.5% in zone runs. Wow. So it's a complete different flip in a different direction. You could tell that in the scheme. Uh, I was surprised there was only six play-action passes from what PFF said in terms of uh, the percentage. So it was about 37.5% of the pass attempts by the quarterbacks were play-action. 56%, well, this is TVD, six, 56% were dropbacks. So you're going to see a lot more straight dropback stuff and let TVD go to work and read the field. So that's interesting to see as well, where a lot of the passes last year were RPO based. Yeah. Big difference in 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 the uh the Gaddis offense. Good stats there from you, Carlos. <laughs> Defensively, um, I'm gonna count it up here how many defensive linemen ended up getting in the game. You mentioned the injury to Taylor, which by the way, Mario postgame told us he thinks he's gonna be fine. Same with uh Ja'Kai Clark, who tweaked his ankle early mm-hmm. in the game and stayed in. He got he got his t- his ankle wrapped up, he stayed in the game. Um Couple more injury notes. Um, Jalen Knighton went through pregame warmups in pads and then went back to the locker room, got out of them. We all thought that there was a possibility he wouldn't play this game just because of him getting a little nicked up in camp. Zion Nelson didn't even go out there at all. So everything we said as far as predicting him not playing in the opener came true. He may not even play next week. We'll, we'll see where he's at physically, but mm-hmm. he wasn't. And, and Logan Sagapolo was the other offensive lineman who was out that that had gone through most of camp and for whatever reason. Uh, who knows if he got injured late in, in practice or, or whatever, but he he was not in there in the opener. Um, those guys at some point will be back, probably Texas A&M. Um, but let's let's go to defensive line. Um, they went deep. There was a little rotation. There were times when they kicked the ends inside um, on third downs and went with their NASCAR sort of pass rush, right, where, where mm-hmm. they have uh, – you know, the faster guys on the inside. Um, Agude played the most snaps of anybody, 25 snaps on uh, on the defense um, in terms of defensive line. Harvey started, J- uh, Daryl Jackson started, Mesador started, Taylor started. Um, those were your four starters. And then Elijah Roberts played 20 snaps. Jordan Miller played 19. Antonio Maltry played 17. Uh, Chance Williams played 16. Harrison Hunt and Lichtenstein 15. And then the true freshman, Nigel Kelly, who we heard so much about, he did get in there early on in the first half on yeah. some third down series, and he played 13 snaps. After that, it was kind of the other guys that just got some garbage time snaps. So really it was, if you add it up here, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. You, you went 12 deep on the defensive line, which is what coaches were talking about, six inside, six outside. So those are your 12 guys that we'll probably see uh, play a lot moving forward, those 12. Um at linebacker, Corey Flag and, and Steed started 34 snaps for Flag, 30 for Steed, 17 for Keontra Smith, 16 for Caleb Johnson, the transfer from UCLA. Keontra's breakdown in pass coverage was why he's not starting and why you're not yeah. seeing more of him. Um, you mentioned Flag earlier. Caleb Johnson, to me, at some point or another, is going to start to turn it up and be the guy. Agree or disagree with that? I agree. And I think there's one play in particular that sticks out in my mind. The reason why he's going to eventually take over Corey Flag. There was a pass um, where Bethune threw it to the right sideline, and he was basically playing the weak side linebacker spot, flew to the ball, and was right there in front of the running back, right before as he caught the ball, 
although he got a yard or two out of the play, he was still in position to make a play, whereas Corey Flagg would have been trailing that, wouldn't have gotten there in time, and probably would have been a bigger gain if he hadn't uh, because of it. So I think he sh- you see Caleb Johnson's athletic ability and what it can be. I think it's just a matter of getting accustomed to the defense, getting acclimated to the reads, and eventually he's going to take over that linebacker spot. You know, Corey Flagg also in other areas – you know, he he was lost a couple of times in pass coverage where he would get into his pass drop and guys would be catching the ball right next to him because he's not having a spatial awareness of where the routes are coming from mm-hmm. uh, and reading the quarterback size. So I think that eventually is going to going to be what, what's going to be his downfall, his lack of athletic ability and his inability to be good in pass coverage, which are two of Caleb Johnson's strengths. Yeah. Um, cornerbacks, Ivy started, Stevenson started, Corey Couch started. Um, none of those were really surprises considering the way coaches were talking about Ivy and camp. Um, 37 snaps for Stevenson and Ivy couch played 31 Frierson. I'm listed as a cornerback. Cause when you, when you play that slot and, and you have to be in coverage, I know they're going to call him the, uh, the star. Um, but in the end, him and couch, I mean, it's a nickelback, you know, yeah. and, and very rarely will you see, I thought Frierson, obviously he had the pick six off the deflection from Mesador, but I thought he did a good job early on, you know, hitting the running back at the line of scrimmage, not allowing, you know, Bethune to convert a third and short, um, Daryl Porter Jr., the transfer from West Virginia, got 18 snaps. Isaiah Dunson, 13. And then we heard a lot about Malik Curtis in camp, only played eight snaps after all the uh, the high praise. Um, and then the two freshmen, Jaden Harris, Kamari Rogers, uh, four snaps and three snaps. So I think on most Saturdays, we will probably see the first five guys I mentioned or six guys I mentioned with Isaiah Dunson and, and Frierson sort of, you know, in the slot with couch. Um, those will be your sick cornerbacks probably most of the season. Curtis will have to see if he if he takes that next step and the coaches trust him to be in the game. But um, you know, Stevenson did get burned in coverage for that 44 yeah. yard gain. And it was a little, it was kind of a moment where it reminded you, okay, his speed. Yeah. And it was just a straight go route. And uh one of the issues was he never got he made contact with the receiver mm-hmm. and he hesitated a little bit on his back pedal. Um, but the guy just straight up ran by him. Um, and, and that's something you can't have. If guys from Bethune are going to be running by Tyreek Stevenson, that's going to be a liability down the road when they face uh, better competition and, and real athletic receivers from other teams. And the other thing is, I think at some point, they have to find an answer for who's going to be the other outside corner. It might be Daryl Porter Jr. because I don't trust DJ Ivy. I mean, and we've been saying this for a long time. I've said it a long time on the podcast. DJ Ivy is going to DJ Ivy, and the dude is not there mentally. He's a he's a practice superhero apparently, and he does all the great things at practice. And I feel bad for the kid because he's got a ton of athletic ability. He he's been here a long time. You want to see him succeed. You want to see him be a key part of the program. But he's been so up and down since he's been here that you know at some point he's going to have to just turn the corner, let that light switch go on, or get replaced because it, it's going to be uh, it's going to be rough for him moving forward if he doesn't turn it around quickly. I thought some of the decisions from the coaching staff, and again, this is my opinion. This is nothing I've heard. I thought some of the decisions in terms of who started, um, you know, and and who got play in this game is is them also trying to give these guys an opportunity to keep them involved because we know how this is. Confidence yeah. is everything, and you have to feed some of the some of these guys that so that they they deliver. Frank Ladson didn't drop a ball. He caught his two passes that were thrown his way. Um, all we heard about was the struggles he had in camp, right? That he was inconsistent. So you start him, you give him that opportunity to shine after he transferred here. It also sends a good message, right? To other transfers, you transfer here, you're going to get a chance to play. And and so, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why guys play in football today. Um, we'll see what happens when the games matter and, and how those rotations change. All right. At safety, we mentioned James Williams and kitchens played 40 snaps. They both started 
Al Blades, the, the one little interesting tidbit was that Al Blades played more than Avante Williams. 22 yeah. snaps for him, 14, 14 for Avante, and then Brian Balaam and Markeith Williams, the true freshman, played six and four snaps respectively. But the Blades thing kind of caught me by surprise because I would have expected Avante to get more work. Yeah, me too. And uh, the way it graded out, I think Al had an okay game. Um, Avante also didn't really pop too much. I think Avante's coverage score was a 46.4, which is not good at all. Right. Uh, Al Blades wasn't all that great either at 57.3, but he was slightly better. So I don't know what's going on there. Maybe it's it's just a situation where Al's playing better in practice, where they want a steadying hand as the first, uh, you know, safety off the bench, an older guy that could set, settle the defense uh, when either James Williams or Cam Kitchens are out off the field. Who knows? We'll see what it, what, what it looks like moving forward. I ran into uh, my buddy Andrew Ferrelli from the South Lord Express. He was there at the game. We talked a little bit of high school football because he went to go see American Heritage take on Lakeland Lake Gibson on Friday. I went. I called you when I was driving to the to the Dillard Shamanad uh, game. Um, I, I bring this up just to say that the one cool thing that I saw on Saturday at the stadium was that new F one. You know the new F one race that they hosted the stadium. They have this new facility that they built, I guess, for fans during the race. Um, and ultimately UM turned it into the recruit hangout, right? For, for yeah. pregame and postgame. And I thought that was a really good idea, really good job by Miami to, to utilize that. It, it looks like a nice area. It's kind of private, uh, kind of looks kind of exclusive, even if it is. Yeah. And uh, they had a bunch of kids there. Uh, Nathaniel Joseph, who's the commitment um, from Edison. You had Ruben Bain. You had the American Heritage kids. Uh, Damari Brown was there. Dillard sent Christopher Johnson, who Miami's after, and Antoine Jackson, who's the 2024 cornerback commitment. A couple of things. I, I will have Andrew back on with me again to talk football at some point, but just to touch on it real quick, Carlos, um, I watched the Christopher Johnson kid. He scored on an 80-yard touchdown on a screen to start the game. I wasn't there for that. I was in the parking lot trying to get a space at that point. Um, but I, he did score on a toss later in the game. One thing I will say about Johnson, he looks more like a receiver to me than he does a back. And that's one mm-hmm. criticism I've, I've heard from others. Uh, I would agree with that. I think he's kind of like Brashard Smith, a lot of straight line speed, right. a lot of explosiveness, but the wiggle is is not there. There were a lot of times where he was running into the line of scrimmage and not getting anywhere. Um, uh, Antoine Jackson lined up against that Jermaine Smith kid who's, who's the top, one of the top receivers in the country in 24 from Chaminade. And he blocked. He deflected a couple passes. They they tried to go to him a couple times. I think with a better quarterback, uh, Jeremiah Smith will probably put up numbers. But I, I what I liked from Jackson was there was a lot of confidence. And the whole game he was talking trash with the Shamanade, um sideline, and he wasn't afraid. And and I think that's a, that's a really awesome. good sign. So just a couple little insights from my high school experience that I wanted to share. And then I wanted to mention the, the recruit hangout. Um, what we learned about Miami's future opponents. Um, Anything pull you from Saturday that you watched? And I don't know if you did scoreboard watching or if you checked out anybody else. Uh, Thursday night, right? Pittsburgh played. You had Virginia Tech. Yeah, watch that game. Yeah. What What were your takeaways? And, and I'll share some of my thoughts as we go through it. Sure. So I, I thought, you know, even though the result uh, was different and maybe the numbers were a little bit skewed towards the other guy, I thought JT Daniels looked better to me than Keaton Slopes. I think JT Daniels was playing under a lot of pressure all game long. Yep. When that Pittsburgh defensive line, he had guys in his face the whole game and he stuck in there and he was delivering the ball and making plays when he had to. Uh, he impressed me uh, in, with his toughness and, and his ability to make plays under that kind of pressure. The rest, Keaton Slovis to me was more efficient. I think he was more like a dinker and a dunker. He w- didn't really impress me with his 
playmaking ability. He had good numbers, but I wasn't, he's not the next coming of Kenny Pickett, I would say. I think he is maybe a slightly, uh, slightly below Kenny Pickett in terms of his skill set, but he's good enough to help them win. And I thought Pittsburgh's receivers uh, were better than I thought they were going to be. Um, Even with without, the drop, the drop touchdown. I mean, he was, he was yeah, behind I the think, defense there. Right. He was behind the defense, but at the same time, they also made plays, time with plays when they needed to. Um, and you didn't expect them to have some explosive plays that they did once they lost Jordan Addison. So I thought they 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 uh, they looked they looked better than I anticipated. I thought they were just going to be trash, but they weren't. They were pretty good. They weren't bad. Um, well, I was just going to add to to the Pittsburgh thoughts, and and you can interject too if you want. But I, look, five sacks for Slovis. The offensive line is supposed to be really good. I, yep. I, I would put most of those on Slovis. Who put? As somebody told me this Held weekend, he on. put he put the slow in Slovis in terms mm-hmm. of decision making. Um, but, uh, you know, and they also gave up a boatload of rushing yards, which was kind of concerning because it's not like West Virginia has some tremendous rushing offense. Um, they, West Virginia rolled up 190 yards, rushing two scores against Pittsburgh, which led the ACC in run defense last season, 89.21 yards per game. Um, that to me was kind of a, uh, kind of a little bit more troublesome. The fact that they gave up so many rushing yards. Yeah, and I agree. Like you said, I think the offensive line on uh, for Pittsburgh is not as good as they thought it was going to be, even though, like you said, a lot of it was a coverage sacks based on what, you know, Keanu Slovis was doing with the football holding on to it too long. But uh, defensively, it looks like it's feast or famine. If they're not getting sacks, if they're not getting pressure on the quarterback, then they're getting beat down the field. Their secondary isn't all that great. Um, and they're giving up a lot of r- yards rushing. So it, it's it's sort of, um, I know it's one game, but it's it's brought Pittsburgh down a level to me in terms of how tough they're going to be on the schedule. Um, it, it makes me less concerned about them. All right. That's the last game of the season. Um, the two before that Clemson and Georgia tech, they've yet to take the field. They play Monday night in Atlanta at the Mercedes Benz uh, dome. Uh, obviously, you know, Georgia tech's a team that has re- is relying big time on the transfer portal. It kind of changed the mm-hmm. culture there. Jeff Collins is on the hot seat. Nobody's expecting him really to, to last past this season. Clemson, of course, Opens the season, uh, I think, ranked fourth in the country. Uh, they're fourth in the ESPN Power Index um, and fifth in the 247 Sports Team Talent Composite, by the way, which I included in my little breakdown here of all these teams because I want everybody to kind of know this stuff or at least have it in the back of their mind. Georgia Tech is 71st in the Power Index, 30th in the 247 Sports Talent Composite, uh, which measures basically you know what the recruits, what they were all ranked as recruits, the, the players on scholarship mm-hmm. there. Um, FSU plays tonight against LSU. Obviously, uh, that'll tell us a lot more about the Seminoles. Um, they debuted with the 47-7 win over Duke, uh, Duquesne, had three 100-yard rushing running backs in that game. Um, Seminoles ranked 36 in the power index, 17th in the 247 uh, sports ta- uh, team talent composite. All right, now let's get to some teams that, that will will have already played, obviously, as we're recording this. And I think play. this uh, FSU FSU could pull the offset tonight, but I think it, at the very least it's going to be close. Right. I think, think FSU is going to be better than they were last year, in my opinion. I believe so, too. But yeah. we'll see. Um, all right, Virginia opened the season, the Tony Elliott era, with a 34-17 home victory over Richmond, which was 6-5 and five last season in FCS program. Uh, they fell behind 7-0 early. Brennan Armstrong, uh, you know, they kind of turned things around quickly, went up 28-10 to 10 at the half. They put up 505 yards of offense. We know they have good receivers. Armstrong was 21 of 33 passing, 246 yards, two touchdowns and a pick. He also had a 64-yard touchdown run, 104 yards rush, 105 yards rushing total. Cavaliers, 65th in the ESPN Power Index, 59th 
in the 247 sports team uh, talent composite. Anything from Virginia give you any fear? Is it just the receivers in the passing game that you think could, could be well, problematic for Miami? It's the receivers. He's got really good receivers. Brandon Armstrong as a whole, not just yep. as a quarterback. His athletic ability also, which he's been hurt the last couple of years, hasn't been able to show it as much in the past. Um, early on in his career, he did. Uh, he was known more as a dual threat quarterback. And I think if he adds that get part of his game back again, he's going to be tough to defend. I think the other thing is the offensive line looked better than people anticipated. But then again, it's Richmond. So we need to see a little bit more before we start saying, OK, Virginia's offensive line is, is actually going to be decent. It's not going to be bad. Um, giving up 17 points to Richmond defensively, meh. You know, I wasn't really impressed with their, their defense. Uh, we'll see what happens down the road. But I think Virginia is who we thought they were for now. I still need to see more of them before we make a decision as to, you know, how tough this team is going to be on the schedule where I change my opinion about Duke. I thought had a really impressive opening. Um, yes. They, they beat Temple 30 to nothing at home, 500 yards total offense. Their quarterback, Riley Leonard, looked good 24 of 30 passing, 328 yards, two touchdowns. He also ran the ball well, 64 yards. So, sort of a dual threat back there. Their receivers did well. Uh, they held Temple to only 179 yards total offense, 65 rushing. So Mike Elko, who was the Texas A&M defensive coordinator, came over, and I thought he maximized Absolutely. what he had. And it was a really good debut for him. And Temple's a decent team. They're not They're not a bad team. And I think I, I can't even remember the last time Duke shut out an FBS opponent or at least a power, you know, a team, a group of five opponent or a power five opponent. So yeah. that's impressive by Elko in his first game. And I think I tweeted this out that I think Duke is going to end up being better in Virginia Tech this year. And right now, the ESPN Power Index agrees with you because they've got Duke 83rd. They've got Virginia Tech 85th. Um, Duke 63rd talent-wise uh, in terms of the 247 sports team talent rankings. And then Virginia Tech is 52nd. Uh, they've, they've recruited a little bit better, but ranked 85th in the Power Index. Virginia Tech, obviously, disappointing loss. Um, let the league down in my mind. Um, Old Dominion, 20-17. to 17, They lose Brent Pry's debut. Turned it over five times. Blew a seven-point lead in the fourth quarter. Grant Wells, the, the Marshall transfer, took over a quarterback, 21 of 36 for 193 yards and a touchdown but four picks. Yeah. Um, not, not, not winning football for them. They also had a bad snap on a field goal that led to a touchdown. So it's not like the <clears throat> defense gave up a ton, but offensively it was a nightmare. Yeah, they're, they're still pretty bad on offense. They might be worse than they were last year, which is saying something. So I think you know Virginia Tech could end up being a four-win team this year. I know turnovers had a lot to do with it in this game, right. but still, you're, you know, you've got to be more disciplined than that, than that and be more efficient when you're going up against a team like ODU. Uh, you can't be losing that game. That's that's terrible. Yeah, uh, it was on the road. I'll give them that. Uh, at, yeah, at the 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 juggernaut home field advantage that Old <laughs> Dominion has. <laughs> well, uh, North Carolina, they're 2-0. Uh, they've won three straight games over the Hurricanes, so we have to respect their talent. They are <laughs> – 16th in the 247 sports team talent composite rankings, uh, 34th in the ESPN Power Index. But their defense uh, under their new coordinator, Gene Chizik, has not been very good. They gave up 40 points in the fourth quarter in that 63-61 win over Appalachian State. They're giving up 492 yards a game to FAMU and Appalachian State. That's not winning football in the long run. But their quarterback, Drake Mays. Oh, he's legit. He's legit. 53 of 73. 646 yards, nine touchdowns, no picks. And he's also run the ball pretty well. 16 carries, 131 yards and a score. So he he's not just a guy who's going to be a statue back there in the pocket. Yeah, and it's it's strange. You, you were thinking going into the season, you know, how does North Carolina replace Sam Howell? You know, not, not just from the passing perspective, but the way he was using his legs last year and part of the run game. 
And Drake May looks better in both areas right now. He's he's really lighting up as a quarterback. And I, I actually texted you and Kelvin this during the game. I was like, if Texas A&M had Drake May a quarterback, they'd definitely be a college football playoff team. They might win it all because that dude is legit. He's he's for real. The problem is their defense is giving up more points than North Carolina basketball did this past season. <laughs> and that is concerning, right? So I don't know what they need to do. Fire Gene, Gene Chizik, hire Hubert Davis as a defensive coordinator. <laughs> Maybe that helps. But, man, 61 points to App State, 40 in the fourth. What the hell are they doing? They're, they might just not – they're not even doing anything. They're just laying down on the field and letting these guys race them up and down the field. And they've got good players. They've got talented guys. I mean, four-star, yeah. five-star defensive linemen. They've got five-star cornerbacks. I mean, they've got guys that, that should be better than they're performing. Maybe they'll turn it around at some point, but right now. Yeah, they're going uh, to start averaging, giving up only 35 a game. Right. That, that, that'll be a start. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Um, all right. We, I mentioned Texas A&M. Sam Conn will be on the podcast uh, pre-recorded from last week talking about A&M breaking down their roster. So I'm not going to get into it too much, but they did beat Sam Houston, as I mentioned, 31 nothing. Um, Purdue, you know, Sam Houston only had 10 first downs, 198 yards of total offense. Yeah. That's Oof. that's pretty good to hold, you know, a, a recent national champion to, to that kind of performance. And then Haynes King, their quarterback, 20 of 31, 364 yards, three touchdowns. Um, they, they only ran for 110 yards, average 3.4 yards a carry. But I mean, to me, it, you know, I think Jimbo Fisher right now is just worried about his, his passing game, trying to get that thing going with Haynes King and those receivers and I Smith, uh, six catches, 164 yards, two scores, uh, Brown too had a, had a score, right? Yeah. Uh, the Aggies 21st in the ESPN power index, even though they're number six in the AP poll. So ESPN power index, a little less excited about Texas A&M. But they are fourth in the 247 sports team talent composite. Again, we don't have to break them down. I'm going to have a whole breakdown with Sam Khan later. I, I don't know if you have any any thoughts. Quick yeah, thought. I think it was uh, their defense is very impressive. They held Sam Houston. I think it was to one of 12 on third down, which mm-hmm. was incredible. Like you said, under 200 yards total offense. Um, their defense is going to be one of the best in the country. They're, they're going to get better as the season goes on. Uh, DJ Jerkins, a really good defensive coordinator. You know, Mike Uncle was as well, but it, it's a little bit of a change in the system. And as they get adapted to it, they're going to be even better. 
Of course, they've got a ton of talent on that side of the ball. To me, although the numbers say that Hayes King balled out, he's a little erratic. He's a little inconsistent. Uh, you know, they may end up being better down the road with Max Johnson, who's a little bit more steady, a little bit more consistent. But Hayes King has the ability to, to give you the big play, and I think that's why Jimbo started him. Um, eventually, look at the run game going. Like you said, I think they were focusing more on trying to get Hayes King in that passing game going, uh, getting acclimated after the injury last year and getting settled back in. Um, I'd like to see him next in a couple more games, see what he looks like and see if he develops. If he's as erratic as I saw a little bit against Sam Houston State, I think the, the Kings defense can get a couple picks against him. Um, Appalachian State plays Texas A&M next. So w- w- they scored 61 in North Carolina. We'll, we'll learn a lot about Texas A&M and North Carolina. Yeah, <laughs> listen, I, I like I like App State. I like their offense. Uh, you know, their two running backs, Noel, did a hell of a job against North Carolina, blew up. Um, Chase Bryce played really well. That's not happening against AM. I think at, at best, if they score 17 against AM, they should be happy. All right. Um, part of the reason I want to do all this is to let people know Miami's next other two opponents, not named Texas AM, Southern Miss and Middle Tennessee State, did not look very good. Um, Middle Tennessee State, um, they were seven and six last year, won the Bahamas Bowl. They got blown out by James Madison 44 to seven. On Saturday. Listen, James Madison was a hell of a president, but I don't know about <laughs> only, only, 10, only 10 first downs for Middle Tennessee, um, 12 rushing yards in that game. Uh, their only score came when they were down 37 nothing on a 26 yard pass. Uh, the ESPN Power Index has them 109th, uh, 103rd in the 247 sports team talent composite. So, again, you talk about Bethune Cookman, right? What kind of challenge can you measure? I don't know that we're going to get much out of the Middle Tennessee State game, but that could be good because that's after the Texas AM game. And that yeah, might be a nice little rest. Nice little rest for some guys. Uh, Southern Miss, who is the next opponent, they lost uh, 29 27 at home to Liberty, um, which is a good program. Liberty's not a bad yeah, team. Yeah, they've been uh, good for the last few years with you, Freeze. But they were 3 9 last year, and it was a quadruple overtime loss at home. And they were basically down to their third string quarterback in this game. Um, didn't throw the ball well at all. Five of 13 passing, 137 yards, three picks for Southern Miss's offense at home against Liberty. Um, so you, you talk about Miami's defense. Are they really going to be challenged this week? We'll see. Frank Gore Jr. Uh, ran it 32 times for 178 yards and two touchdowns. Southern Miss pass to run ratio, uh, 54 <laughs> 54 runs, 13 pass attempts. So the run defense, right? We, we talk about that. How's, how's going to get a great defense? test next week. They're going to be tested. Frank Ward Jr. can play. Um, yeah. But you don't have the threat of the passing game, really. So it'll be interesting. Any other thoughts on this game uh, coming up, Carlos? Yeah, I mean, that, that was an interesting result to me. It showed uh, Southern Miss's fight and their determination, you know, not having a quarterback, not having the ability to throw the ball, just grinding it out on the ground and playing defense against a Liberty team that was scoring a lot of points the last couple of years under Hugh Freeze. That was an impressive result for them. Um, but I think at the end of the day, like you said, if all you have to focus on in the run game, you're going to see a lot of loaded boxes for the Hurricanes, man-to-man coverage on the outside, daring Southern Miss to try and throw the football. And that's not a position you want to be in if you're Southern Miss. All right. I want to get into the mailbag and then we're going to wrap this puppy up because one more, one more ACC result that I found uh, pretty interesting. Go ahead. Go for it. Syracuse bitch slapping Louisville 31 to seven and Malik Cunningham playing like total crap. That, that was very good. In fact, uh, makes my preseason prediction look like ass because I said Malik Cunningham might be the, the conference's player of the year. Instead, they're getting bitch slapped, like you said, by Syracuse. Yeah. Uh, clearly, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. 
<laughs> well, listen, it happens to all of us, man. We come in here with these uh, expectations that guys are going to actually get better from year to year. And all of a sudden, game one, they lay an egg. And you're like, what the hell was I thinking? Uh, <laughs> all right, let's get to the wide right mailbag. Uh, this is from Frank Russo, Doc R89 on Twitter. Who are the three new starters at linebacker? Looks like Frank is done with this group of guys. <laughs> um, listen, Wayman Seed was okay. Um, Corey Flagg was okay. Uh, to me, his issues were more in pass coverage and, again, showing lack of athletic ability against the football. He's a really good blitzer for whatever reason. I don't know why he looks more athletic when he blitzes. Um, but I think, like you said, eventually you'll see Caleb Johnson in there with Steed, or you might see Chase Smith alongside him, or maybe Keontre if he gets his act together. Because I think there were times when both Caleb Johnson and Keontre Smith were in there where the defense looked better. Um, but then you had those mental farts from Keontre Smith. Yeah, it, it, it's a tough deal. I think if you could combine the talents of Keontre Smith um, Wayman Steed and Corey Flagg, you might have a decent linebacker. Yeah. Um, the problem is you need to play all of them because you just don't have the depth at that position to, at least not yet, until <clears throat> Besaint and, and these other guys, like you said, Chase Smith, come along and, and are ready. But that's going to take a while. Uh, I don't think you see any changes. I think Corey Flagg and Wayman Steed start at least through the Texas A&M game. And then after that, we may see a reevaluation. But uh, yeah. I, I just don't see any changes coming. Um, this is from uh, NRP12 on Twitter. What are the thoughts about the defense? It appears the defense lacks team speed. Well, we just kind of touched on that, didn't we? Um, NRP12 on Twitter. Um, I, I I don't know if it's speed or if it's smarts or if it's just, you know, some teams are going to be able to expose Miami. You know, there's going to be times, like you said, Carlos, where they're quarterbacks are going to break containment they're going to roll them out and they're going to be able to find creases in this defense because the linebackers aren't fast enough to get to where they need to be and that some of the defensive linemen aren't fast enough to to keep up with those quarterbacks that's what's happening in college football today these athletic fast quarterbacks that can run they create problems um and and to me is miami's defense fast enough no but that's that's why mario is trying to recruit better players here and, and that's look they look slow against bethune cookman at times but are they going to look slow against everybody else in the ACC? Probably not. Um, I would say they'll look slow against Texas A&M and, and, and Clemson and maybe North Carolina at times. But I don't think there's any other offenses on the schedule right now that I sit there and I say, well, these, these, there's no match. There's no way Miami has enough speed to play with those teams. Right. And I think when you're uh, lacking overall team speed on defense, then that makes technique and assignment responsibility and, and soundness. Uh, in terms of and your, gang your, tackling and gang tackling, that makes it that much more important, right? So, like we talked about that Nigel Lee Kelly play where he collapsed the pocket and rather than staying outside contained, he came in too far down the line and let the quarterback escape, things like that. And I think a lot of the scrambles happened when Miami was in man coverage and had their backs turned to the ball in the secondary. And that's when the quarterbacks were sort of getting loose, um, which is something you need to work on. I, I think eventually you'll get it down. The concerning thing to me is when you've got you know, your supposedly best corner getting beaten on straight go by a guy from Bethune. That's going to get exposed. I don't think DJ Ivy's uh, slow or unathletic. I just think he's he's just not there mentally on occasion, right. and that's going to get exposed. So we'll see how it goes. I think they have enough speed to win the the nine or ten games. I just think it's going to also require them to be sound in terms of their technique and their assignment responsibility. This is from David Hernandez D Hernan underscore on Twitter. What ACC team surprised you this week, and what are you expecting from Miami Week Two versus a tougher opponent? Well, we just kind of went over that, David. So I apologize that we yep. killed your question with the ACC surprises. 
Um, Syracuse was definitely the surprise. Um, what am I expecting from week for Miami week two versus a tougher opponent? I think defense, I think offensively, you know, I want to see more of the, of the good execution. Um, I want to see the receivers continue to hold on to the ball. I don't want to see sacks. Um, you know, Southern Miss's defense will be better than Bethune's, I think. Yeah. Um, so that'll be the real thing. And then, and then, you know, running, you know, run defense, can they, can they hold, you know, Frank Gore down, Frank Gore Jr. Can they, Make sure that they wrap up well. Will it will it be more than seven missed tackles, or will they keep it around that number? I think if they keep it under ten missed tackles, then you're probably going to have a good defense. That's good tackling if you have it under ten. Yep, I agree. And it's uh, it's a situation where you want to see this offense continue to be clean and crisp and efficient, like they were in game one, and build off that. All right, this is from uh, G underscore Reg Third Leg Greg on Twitter. Uh, he's been on the show a few times with us here with his questions. How quick of a hook should we expect on guys like uh, 11 and eight? That would be uh, Corey Flagg and DJ Ivy. After hearing all camp, how improved they are just looks more just just looks like more of the same. Well, I mean, that's that's the whole thing here, right? We we, we talked about better coaching. We we talked we, we put all the blame on Manny Diaz. He It's his defense. He recruited these guys. He didn't develop them, et cetera. This is where it becomes a chicken or the egg conversation, right? Like, can can a coach simply get better results, or is it between the ears of, of those players? I don't think I don't think they're going to get the hook these first couple games. I think you're going to see Corey Flag and, and DJ Ivy out there until they get to the point where somebody else who is better can replace them. Yeah, until somebody else shows that they deserve more playing time, and I think eventually you'll see Daryl Porter, Daryl Porter Jr. move into that role and beat out DJ Ivy at some point. Uh, just like we talked about Caleb Johnson replacing Corey Flagg at some point. It's going to happen. Just it's a matter of when. Yeah. This is from J.K. Slay on Twitter. Is it too early to be concerned about the defense? Poor containment, missed tackles, inconsistent coverage. Uh, great defensive coaches, but the back seven is essentially the same group that underperformed last year. Is this just a case of we have to wait for better talent? Um, I mean, we've we've kind of been hitting on this subject a couple of times. Is there better talent? When I look at the freshmen like Kamari Rogers, Jaden Harris, um, you know, Markeith Williams, the safety that they picked up in this last class, do I see guys that are head and shoulders better? Do I see Malik Curtis being better? I think if they were, they'd be on the field already. Yeah. So can they be coached up better? Can they develop better habits in their three to four years? Yes. But I still think recruiting is, is what you're waiting for. Yeah, absolutely. But I think uh, as time goes on, remember, there's also a new defensive system. These guys got to get used to that. It's game one. They're just working out the kinks. All they've done is scrimmage each other. So you're going to see that defense get better with their assignments as time goes on. But again, like I said, there, there's some concerning spots at the corner position. I think the safeties are solid. Uh, the linebackers, of course, are still a question. I think the defensive line is solid. So it's, it's a mixed bag on defense. And as time goes on, They'll find tighter rotations. They'll know who to count on, and they'll be better with the scheme. This is from Asher Wildman13 on Twitter. This is for you specifically, Carlos. If you're an oh, opposing no. defense, would you ever put a man on Tyler Van Dyke in RPOs? It's like watching Kaya again. You know he he isn't running the ball, and if and if he doesn't, it's it's rare. Does that hurt the offense? No. You know why? Because eventually, what they're going to do is if you're spying a guy on Tyler Van Dyke, or if you're just coming at him right away. Uh, and ignoring him in terms of the RPO, they're going to run a, a play, not necessarily Tyler running the ball, but they'll sneak somebody by you in the RPO like they've done. You saw that with Will Mallard. You saw that with the tight ends. Well, they'll fake that RPO or they'll fake that run and just quick into the flat. 
um, and do things where they're taking advantage of what you're you're doing. And eventually, maybe Tyler will pull it and run it on his own. Tyler's athletic. He's more athletic than you think. He's not a, a, a burner, but we saw last year what he did when he tucked the ball and went on occasion. Um, the other thing is it's not necessarily that he's reading for pulling to run. He might be reading to pull and throw uh, something quick in the flat. So that's what they did with Kaya. They would pull and throw bubbles, or they would pull and throw something quick uh, on the off here on the RPO reads. And I don't think it's a whole lot of RPO. It's just the action, the zone action, the way it looks. All right. And this is last one. It's just for me, apparently. Will Satterfield, Louisville's coach, be Miami's next offensive quarter coordinator, <laughs> or will it be Frank Ponce? Um, assuming Josh Gaddis leaves for a head coaching job after the season, I would give Frank Ponce probably the first crack. Um, would Mario bring in Satterfield or another former head coach and kind of screw over Pons? I don't know. I mean, I think I think for Mario, look, he's convinced a lot of guys that are really good coaches or, or recruiters to, to remain on the staff in roles that they could probably they probably deserve, you know, an assistant head, you know, assistant job or coordinator job elsewhere. Um, Pons is one of those guys. He'd be a coordinator somewhere else right now if he if he yeah. wasn't here in Miami. So it, you know, it'll be interesting. I don't know about the connection with Satterfield. I got to do a little bit more homework and see what kind of relationship they've got. Didn't wasn't Satterfield on his FIU staff at some point? Right, but the, but but I think at at some point or another, you know, there's always relationships. There's guys who get along, right, and continue yeah. to have good relationships, and there's guys that don't. So exactly. I don't. That's why I'm not going to sit here and be like, I can I can answer this. I got to do my homework, Asher. I'll I'll try to find out. Yeah, and the fact, listen, the fact that Frank came over here, leaving an offensive coordinator job at App State, not taking another Power Five or group of five offensive coordinator job uh, to be the quarterback's coach here says something. I think the expectation is that if Gaddis pretty soon within a year or two leaves for a head coaching job, Frank should be the next man up. Right. Um, all right. That's going to wrap it up, Carlos. That's uh, that was a good hour long show. Uh, as I mentioned, for those listening on the podcast, not watching us on YouTube, uh, you can tune into my interview with Sam Khan from the athletic talking about Texas A&M. I just wanted to give our listeners an opportunity to, get a little bit more insight on the Aggies because that's such a huge game. George Sedano was down here uh, last week, hung out with Mario for the whole week, had all access. Uh, they're going to run that special that he's doing with him the week of the game. Uh, oh, wow. For, and, I'm, and I'm flying out to Texas. I'll be out there actually two days early. I'll be in Houston hanging out there and, and actually going to watch Reed McKeska play, the uh, tight end recruit uh, who's part of this next class. So I'll be busy um, out there for uh, – you know, there'll be a lot of conversation on AM in the uh, in the weeks ahead. Uh, should I, I got one more podcast question just came in. Uh, this is from Brad Leonard, Insane Kane 09. Can we finally lower the expectations for the defense? Outside of safety, there isn't a ton of quality depth. The defensive line is still improving. Yes, there are a lot of good players, but having eight good players doesn't mean you're dominant. Cornerbacks and linebackers are still extremely lacking. Agree or disagree with that sentiment? Well, listen, I don't know if anybody coming into the season was expecting the defense to be dominant. I, I never had that expectation. I thought they'd be better. I thought they'd be uh, they wouldn't be a liability like they were the last couple of years, right. but I didn't think they were going to be dominant. I didn't. Uh, there's no. There's no. Like you said, there's not enough talent on that side of the ball to be dominant at this point. Mm-hmm. There are areas that are better than than they were. I mean, the defensive line obviously is a lot more talented than it's been in terms of depth, uh, but we're still having those issues at linebacker and corner. But the safeties are solid. So well, what I know. would what I would tell Brad is that there's ways to get around the you know dominant defensive lines. I think Miami's defensive line is going to be one of the better ones in the ACC. There's enough depth there and enough talent there, I think, to be very good. Not great, yeah. but very good. But there are ways to get around it, and that's just getting rid of the ball quickly and doing a whole lot of wide receiver screens, and there's ways to diffuse it. So, um, 
in the end, yes, they're going to need solid tackling, as you mentioned, Carlos. And and again, this isn't a great defense. It won't be a great defense for another year or two, at least. But I think but if they're, they're sound, if they're, they're, they're sound. sound and better. Yeah, but if they're sound, that'll that'll go a long way because, like you yep. said, if they try to take those quick shots with the right receiver screens and bubbles and things of that nature, and they make tackles and they're sound in that, then that'll slow the offenses down. All right, guys, make sure to uh, tune in here to this interview with Sam Khan. If not, we will talk to you again soon. Thanks for watching in on YouTube and putting up with these faces. Joined today by one of my brothers at the company, that would be Sam Khan, our resident expert. Uh, who covers the entire state of Texas for the athletic really does a phenomenal job. Sam, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you doing this morning? Doing great. I, I know you're a busy guy. Uh, you got so many different teams to cover out there and and, and two teams that I would say are are on the rise. Uh, it, you know, Texas and Texas A&M, what they've done on the recruiting trail has just been amazing. Miami's trying to get into the party too. in that, in that great comeback story with Texas and uh, USC and all these other schools that are, that are, you know, investing big NIL dollars to upgrade these rosters. Uh, but the Canes and, and, and A&M will face each other uh, week three, September 17. And I want to bring you on early. I know uh, it's still technically week one and, and this game is until September 17th, but it's a big one. ESPN had their crew down here hanging out with uh, Mario Cristobal all week. George Sedano, who, who, who's one of their NBA guys. Uh, he's, he was with Mario. I saw him having coffee with him. So they're, they're, this is going to be a big deal week three. I'm sure you'll probably be there. I'll be there. Um, just tell us a little bit about A&M and what your early read has been in coming out of camp. Yeah, overall, this is a really good team that has a lot of talent. The one thing that Jimbo Fisher has done, and you referenced the recruiting, he's done a really good job, not just at this last class, which of course got a lot of attention for being the number one class in the country and number one class in the modern era in terms of two, four sevens ratings, but he's done a good job of stacking talent over the last three, four years. They've got four straight top 10 classes. I think actually all four of them, I think rank in the top eight nationally. And so given that when you lose some of the guys they lost last year, like they lost the entire starting defensive line. Well, you recruited, you just recruited eight or seven uh, high-level top 100 defensive linemen. Plus, you've got a lot of guys that are second- and third-year guys who have already been in the program who are ready to step in. So you got a lot of talent overall, top to bottom in the roster. I think this is a team that if the schedule was a little bit more friendly, that this would be a team that might be able to get in the playoff conversation this year. But I, I look at them as a probably a double-digit win team this year, You know, a 10-2 and two type team setting up for a really, really big 2023. But overall, I think uh, this is a good team. It's a confident team. And and I think it's going to be really fascin- a fascinating year after what was a disappointing one in 2021 for Jimbo Fisher and company. Yeah, I mean, uh, they were preseason top 10 last year too, right? I mean, they, they had all the hype, all the expectations. It was year three of the, of the Fisher era, and they go out and go eight and four, but they beat Alabama in the process. So they showed you what they could be. Uh, when they kind of were, were at their best. Now they were playing the whole season with, a, with essentially a backup quarterback uh, after after an injury there to King, um, and and so that that obviously put them uh, back a little bit. Um, but let's let's break the team down position by position. King obviously you know that was the news this week. He won the starting job uh, coming out of camp. Um, let's start with quarterback and and kind of where they're at and, and how good you think they can be at that position. Yeah, I think Kane's King's got a lot of potential. I, I, I'm excited to see him get unleashed and hopefully play uh, a full season here. That that was the thing is I think a lot of the struggles last year were born out of two things: inexperienced quarterback play. Obviously, you ended up with Zach Calzada starting 
10 of the 12 games after King went down and inconsistent offensive line play. They were really young up front last year. They started two freshmen uh, on the offensive line, Bryce Foster at center, Ruben Fathery at right tackle. Both of those guys, by time you got to the end of the season, were really good and you could see these guys are really potential stars. And so they that now up front, I think, has become a strength. And at quarterback, you've upgraded the room, the floor of the room. Because you you have King back, who's now in his third year in the offense, but you brought in a transfer in Max Johnson. So if anything happens to Haynes King, you got a guy who started 14 games at LSU, started all last season, is a bona fide, experienced SEC starter. So you're not in the position you were last year where King goes down, who already was inexperienced, and then now you're turning to another inexperienced guy and you don't have any other scholarship guys beyond him. Now you've got Max Johnson in there and you've got Connor Wegman, a five-star recruit. But King, I think, could really help this offense take off because he's not only a great passer, but he is a tremendous runner. He he's a sub four five forty guy. He 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 hit the. I think Jimbo Fisher told me in July that he hit twenty two miles once on the GPS this offseason, wow. which for a quarterback is pretty impressive, yeah. uh, even if it's without pads, which I assume it would have been. But uh, but that kind of speed for a quarterback, I think you can really open things up offensively. And then the other big thing for AM is going to be expanding the downfield passing game. They struggled throwing the ball downfield. They were in the bottom 35 nationally in a bunch of major categories and throwing balls 10 or more yards in the air. They got to get better in there. They definitely emphasize receiver and high-level receivers in his recruiting class. One of them that you'll probably see in September 17th is Evan Stewart, five-star freshman uh, out of the Dallas area. He's a big-time recruit. And getting a look at him in camp, whew. He, he looks like a guy who yeah. can play right away and contribute. <laughs> yeah, and 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 so uh, ultimately, you know, King, I would say, being a dual threat, right? I mean, that's kind of what separates him maybe from the other two guys, the fact that he's just – he's got that other gear and, and, and can keep defenses honest with, with just taking off and running and making big plays. Yeah, no doubt. And I think you saw some elements of it uh, when Kellen Mond was there mm-hmm. uh, in his senior year. Uh, and, and Jimbo Fisher, Kelly, Kellen was a great dual threat. He was also a very, very fast guy you know, was a track star in high school and things like that. Jimbo very much tried to make him into a more of a pro style quarterback and did a good job of it. But Kellen gave you an element of when I get out on the edge and the play breaks down, I can do something different and, and I can extend plays or I can run. King's got that ability as well. And I think it's going to be the same thing. You're going to, you're going to find some growing pains again. He's only started two games and really only played five quarters as a starter. Uh, the rest of his time in in an AM uniform has been as backup and mop-up duty. So this is going to be a learning experience for him. Jimbo Fisher is, you know, known for having a, a very complex pro-style offense. So he asks a lot. He demands a lot of his guys. But having been in this thing for three years now, he's gotten some experience. He's gotten a chance to start. I think that the opportunity is we're, we're going to see how it turns out, obviously. And this this non-conference schedule will be a great time to see how Haynes King grows, but I do think his pure talent is good enough to help, like I say, take this offense to the next level, in my opinion. Running game, uh, Isaiah Spiller's gone. He's, he's on the Chargers. He's my handcuff uh, to Austin Eckler and, uh, and my fantasy team, so I have to make I drafted sure I, him, too. <laughs> I, I got I got to make sure I get him, add him to the roster here at some point. Uh, but they still got one of the fastest, most talented uh, backs back there, I guess, and, and Devon Chain, uh, a kid who uh, I think made – didn't he make the freaks list? Yeah, yeah, he did. He he is he is he is a physical freak because he is 
first of all, everybody talks about his speed, which is, I mean, he runs a, a 10, 100 meters. Wow. Uh, he, he made the NCAA championships last year in track. He's a, he's a legitimate track star, but he also is a little, lot more durable and stronger than you would think. You think of speed guys and you think, Oh, that's a guy, you know, who is just only going to be on the perimeter. No, Devon Achan will put his nose in between the tackles and he'll get after it. And if you, if anybody watched that Orange Bowl that they won, uh, that Texas A&M beat North Carolina a couple years ago, yeah, he ran for I think for a seventy-yard touchdown, and you see him break about three tackles on the way to to that to that score. So he's got that kind of physical ability. the The, the interesting thing will be. Now he's going to be the lead guy. He's going to get the bulk of the carries. He got over 100 carries last year, finished with, I think, 900-ish yards. So he's gotten a lot of work, but now he is going to be the bell cow as opposed to Isaiah Spiller. So it's going to be interesting to see how he responds to that. And they've got some guys they like beyond him, but but he is going to be the star. And I think if things go like you think they can go for AM this year, I, I wouldn't rule him out as a dark horse Heisman guy down the road. I, I think he's yeah. got that kind of talent. Yeah, uh, Amari Daniels is a is a Miami area guy. I played at Central, um, and and you know I guess he's he's one of the backups there. Ernest uh, Crownover, I guess, is another one. Um, just do they feel confident if something were to happen to HN that they'd be okay? Yeah, yeah, they do. I think so. You know, L.J. Johnson uh, is one of Amari Daniels. I think those are the two mm-hmm. next guys that you're looking at is right. is Dan- Daniels and uh, and L.J. Johnson, and then they brought in a. Uh, top 100 freshman uh, out of Louisiana in uh, Le'Veon Moss. So between those three, yeah, I think they feel good about what they have. LJ's been in the program a little bit. Amari's been in the program a little bit. So uh, I don't think it's going to be the one-two punch that they had with Spiller and A-Chain. Those are two really, really mm-hmm. high-level guys. And we'll have to see. I mean, LJ was a blue-chip recruit, the top top recruit. Amari was a good recruit. So who knows? But uh, that that's going to be one another one of the interesting learning experiences in these first few games in non-conferences, who among those guys develops into the number two guy. You mentioned uh, Evan Stewart. How deep is that receiver room, and do they have a tight end that Miami should be concerned about? So the tight end is going to be a, re- a rebuilding area for them. They they're, mm-hmm. they had Jalen Weidermeyer for the last three years. Uh, he was a Mackey Award finalist twice. They, they've got now three freshmen. They've got, some, they've got some veteran guys who've been in the program, like Max Wright and Blake Smith, who are more blocking types. But they yeah. brought in three true freshmen, uh, Jake Johnson, who's the brother of, of the LSU transfer, Mac Johnson, Max Johnson. Uh, they brought in Donovan Green, who's a local guy from the Houston area. Uh, and they brought in a Swedish, uh, a Swedish tight end uh, from the PPI program that that uh, that travels around the country, Theodore Omstrom. Mm-hmm. They are those are the three guys that are going to be in the mix. I would anticipate Jake Johnson and, and Donovan Green being the guys who get a lot of the action early. Theodore's, you know, Swedish. He's, I think, he's probably still going to take some time to acclimate a little bit as he gets adjusted to to football on this side of the pond. But Donovan and and Jake, I feel like, are really, really highly talented. It's just going to be an issue of seeing him getting live reps. When I saw him in practice, really impressive. I'm really impressed by Donovan Green. I think he's he's a good one. Uh, as far as receiver, yeah, Evan Stewart. Obviously, you're going to hope that he stretches the field. Uh, but their their best receiver, pound for pound, is Anaya Smith, and he does everything. He does, he's a receiver. He'll line up in the slot. He can go out out wide. He can go in the backfield and take a handoff. He's kind of their Debo Samuel in, in a way and has been that for the last couple of years. And he'll also be a return specialist. But Anais is their go-to guy. And then the other guy I would put on the radar here, and it's not somebody that people talk about a lot, but I think he's going to be a really key cog to them is Chase Lane. Veteran receiver. He's going to his senior year. He's battled some injuries here and there, but really, really reliable. Good hands. Overall, really talented guy. 
uh, not going to blow you away. He's not going to blow you away with his speed, or he's not. I don't think he's going to make a million highlight reels. But he's a reliable guy who I think uh, can be a real safety valve for Haynes King this season. And I think he's going to be invaluable to this receiving core this year if he can stay healthy. Um, I'm, I'm sitting here cheating, reading your, your state of the program, just so I can review all these names. I've got so many names in my head, so I need, I need to use this as my cheat sheet. But <laughs> this is where I remind our listeners and, and people tuning into us here on YouTube that, you know, the athletic, we had a state of the program for every power five team, I think, except for Syracuse, who, who didn't want to help us out too much <laughs> with that with that endeavor. But uh, but you, you did an excellent job with all, you know, breaking this down. So if they want to read this for themselves. Uh, you can sign up for the athletic. Just click on 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 do a search on Google for Sam Khan state of the program at Texas A&M and it'll come up right away. And you think it's a dollar to sign up. Make sure you subscribe and, and read this stuff. It's good. Good information as you as you scout all the opponents on Miami schedule. Um, the offensive line, as you wrote here, three out of the five starters are back, basically the center and the right side. Um, how's the confidence level in that group coming out of camp? Miami's feeling really confident about what they did in the transfer portal on the defensive line. And they really think that that's going to be their team strength this year. They've got six or seven guys. They think they can roll uh, at edge and at the tackle position, which is going to be pivotal in today's game to, to have that kind of depth. No doubt. No doubt. The, like I said earlier, I think that's one thing that was a little bit of weakness early on last season. Mm-hmm. And they th- think they feel like the offensive line is becoming a strength for that right. day and now. That that right having that right side back is going to be huge. Having Foster back is going to be huge, and they and they've got depth. Uh, Daryl Dickey, their offensive coordinator, said that he feels like they've got more guys up front that they can put into a game and trust in a game than they've had since the staff has been here. So so that's that's a positive. They Trey Zoon's probably going to be in your left tackle. He's a guy who's been around a little bit, so they they feel overall pretty good about that group. And you saw it against the against Alabama. They really did a pretty decent job of protecting Calzada, of opening some holes in the run game. So if they can play to that level and play to it consistently, then you really have unlocked something. I don't know if this line is going to reach the level of the 2020 line when a went 9-1. and one. That group was one of the best in the country. But they definitely feel a lot better about where they sit up front than they did a year ago when when they had to break in those two freshmen and when they had to mix and match. And, yeah. guys, they had so many different combinations up front. And they did lose a first-round pick in Kenyon Green, who played four of those positions last year. But overall, they still feel pretty good about the talent they have because of the level they've recruited the last few years. Obviously, big change on defense. Mike Elko goes to be the head coach at Duke. and uh, But how's the system in place? Is it just picking up and, and running the same same scheme pretty much? Yeah, the, the, the base four down is still going to be pretty similar. They're still going to have running out five defensive backs quite a bit. Uh, obviously, DJ Durkin's putting a little bit of tweaks here and there, and there's going to be some differences uh, for sure. And and that's another thing is over these next few weeks, we'll see how does he call a game? Is he aggressive as Elko is when it comes to blitzing and things like that? But the talent is there. And overall, like I said, you saw what Durkin did at Ole Miss turning around from 2020 to 2021. That, that defense made a lot of big steps. So I'm curious to see what kind of difference you see here because you do have a lot of young faces that that defensive line is going to be a lot of new guys a lot of fresh face even the ones who have been in the program most of them haven't started uh full-time they've been maybe spot starters guys that have been rotational guys so uh they got a lot of experience on the back end a lot some pretty good experience at linebacker and a lot of new faces up front so i'm, I'm curious to see how it plays out but overall the returns on durkin have been pretty good 
who uh, who stood out in camp? I mean, I, I mean, we know. I mean, seven. You mentioned seven defensive line, uh, defensive linemen in his last recruiting class. Uh, Shamar Stewart is a guy locally here out of South Florida. The Miami badly wanted Mario wasn't able to keep him here. Uh, I think maybe if he had a little bit more time to recruit him, maybe he would have been able to convince Shamar. Where Shamar in that pecking order, as far as what you're hearing and seeing, is he is he going to play this year? There's just too many better guys in front of him, and 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 kind of who's who's kind of standing out. No, I, I think Shamar is a guy that'll get on the field. And I tell you, he's one when you go, when you look at him, when you go out there and watch him, he looks yes. like I was saying <laughs> earlier with some of the guys, he looks like a division one major college football defensive lineman. So I think you'll see him get in the rotation for sure. Uh, some of the other guys, Anthony Lucas, who is a yeah. freshman uh, top 50 guy from the state of Arizona. Uh, he was an early enrollee and that, yeah, I, I would be stunned if that guy didn't make a big impact for them this year. Uh, that I think you'll see you'll see Walter Nolan in the mix, uh, mm-hmm. who was the number two uh, overall recruit in the country, number one defensive lineman. I think uh, you'll see him in the mix as well. I think so. You, a lot of these young guys will get in the mix, but the names that you'll probably see more of are going to be McKinley Jackson, Fadil Diggs, uh, Shamar Turner. These are all guys that were in the previous classes uh, before Isaiah Rakes. Isaiah Rakes has been a rotational defensive lineman for them in previous years. Uh, those are some of the guys I think you'll see a lot of. And I think you're going to see A&M, kind of like you said with Miami, they're yeah. going to try to roll eight, maybe even ten guys up front because they can, because they can afford you, because they got this much talent up front. Uh, and it'll get a chance to get some of those young guys some experience, but it'll, it'll also help develop those guys who have been in the program who are now mo- moving into those starting roles. Linebacker is the one area on defense for Miami that, you know, people look at the roster and they say, okay, they need somebody to step up there. They're one of the worst tackling teams in the country. Um, they went out and they got uh, Caleb Johnson through the through the transfer portal, um, a guy that, you know, was at Texas, I guess, at one point. Um, and, and you know, they're excited about him. Um, they're excited about some of the growth these guys uh, have been having under Charlie Strong. Where's the linebacker position at A&M and, and who are kind of the guys there? I think they I think they feel good about their their starting guys. Edrin Cooper is probably the guy that'll flash the most. Uh really, really fast, can run and hit. Has been in the program for a little bit. Andre White, pretty experienced guy. I think those two guys you're gonna see quite a bit of. And then you'll see them rotate, you know, a Terry and Lee Jr. or so even some of their freshmen potentially. But that's the area where I think uh, if Jimbo Fisher could have added somebody from the portal this summer to to store restore some depth a little bit i think he would have loved to have done that uh that that was the one thing when i talked to him in the spring you know he thought hey if if there's one spot i like to shore up depth wise it's linebacker and they, and they explored it a little bit didn't end up getting anybody but they, they had kicked the tires on katie davis who, who's at north texas who ended up staying in north texas uh and, and certainly they they mined the port a little bit for it but they haven't really found a guy but chris russell's a guy you may see a little bit but edge cooper and andre white are going to be the two guys you see the most of uh, and, and then from there on, it's just kind of a rotational deal to see who who can step up. Yeah, four out of the five in the secondary, as you wrote here in your state of the program, are back in terms of starters. Uh, cornerbacks, Jaden Jones, Tyreek uh, Chappelle, and uh, you got some guys at safety, obviously. Uh, tell us about that group and how good – How I mean, obviously the defense was, was pretty good last year, but uh, how would you rate them coming out of camp here? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a good group, and that that is probably the group in the on defense that you're going to feel best about is in the secondary. Like you said, you got Jones and Chappelle back, and they're they're pretty deep at corner. They can rotate a lot of guys. Brian George, who's who's played a lot a lot in his time, is the back. Miles Jones, a six year guy, 
who's been in this program since I think 2017. I think he signed with Kevin Sumlin. Uh, he's a, wow. he, he's been around he's been a long, around. long time. Yeah. So, <laughs> and Miles is a guy. He's battled some injuries, but super experienced, long, uh, really, really talented guy. So they're really deep at corner. And then they brought in some really talented guys. Denver Harris is a guy who one of the top 100 guys to five star prospect. Uh, I think he's a guy you could see contribute fairly soon. Uh, and then in the back end, the, the the fascinating part will be, you know, how do they use Antonio Johnson? That is their best defensive back, in my, in my opinion, by far. Uh, super talented guy. Mostly played that nickel role, that hybrid safety yeah. corner role, closer to the box because he can get in the mix and and uh, he's around the ball a lot. Uh, can can be a real problem. But he's got the ability to be on the back end if they need him. If they need him on the roof, he can do that. And so uh, he it'll be fascinating to see, does he stay in that role that he was in last year or they move him around as they work in some of these other guys into some of these other positions? And then Damani Richardson, who is a veteran guy, bypassed chance to go to the draft, com- coming back for a senior season. Damani's a true leader, one of the, one of the true leaders of this team. Uh, as reliable as they come, he's going to be a big-time guy. Uh, and and they've got to fill a spot there. You know, they they've got Damani, Leon O'Neill, who's been the veteran uh, safety for them, went on uh, to the to to the pro leagues. He's he's the guy they're going to have for a place. So it'll be interesting. Is that Antonio Johnson? Is that somebody else? Is that one of these younger guys? Bryce Anderson, a, a true freshman who they brought in, who enrolled in the spring, really really impressive guy. Uh, thought he was thought he was really talented and and saw him do some things in the spring. Saw him do some things in spring ball. I mean, uh, fall camp when I went over to see him a couple weeks ago. So they've got a lot of uh, they got a lot of talent back there. They've got a lot of depth. They've got a lot of experience, and they got some really really highly talented new faces as well. So that's an area where if I'm looking at a strength on this defense, it's definitely the secondary for Texas A&M. And special teams, they've uh, they got to replace their kicker, right? Um, outside of that, though, everybody else is back, and I know they've got a pretty good punter. Yeah, yeah, Caden Davis is probably going to end up being your kicker, uh, and then Nick Constantino, your punter, who, who's one of the best out there. He led the led the conference last year. Uh, I think he averaged about forty six yards a punt. So uh, they feel good there. And then the return game is really, really good. You, you guys, everybody saw Devon A. Chain return that kick against uh, Alabama. Now that he's the lead back, I'll be interested to see, is he still the primary kickoff returner? I would assume so, but that'll be interesting to see, you know, does Evan Stewart figure in there? Does somebody else uh, in the receiver game or maybe even somebody in the secondary figure in that? Uh, does Bryce Anderson, who was a, a high school quarterback and who's handled the ball a lot, could he be a factor there? Uh, be interesting to see. And then Anaya Smith, who's been their primary punt returner, will remain that role. Uh, he's dynamic. Like I said, he, he's kind of the jack of all trades for them. And and honestly, one of the best uh, all around players in the country, one of the more versatile players in the country. So they, they, I think that you feel really good about where you are from a return game standpoint, you feel pretty good at punter. Be interested to see how Caden Davis uh, emerges because Seth Small was so reliable in his time as kicker for them, but they feel pretty confident in him overall. When you play in the SEC West and you've got uh, Alabama and LSU and uh, so many great opponents on the schedule every every year uh i wonder where the excitement level is for miami that's coming off a of seven and five with mario cristobal coming to town <laughs> is for for the fan base there i mean obviously it's it's a step up from from sam houston and appalachian state the first two opponents but um it's different in the sec i i, I think they kind of probably look down their nose at uh, at other at other programs coming from like the acc what what's the excitement level like for for the hurricanes oh no i think i think Everybody's kind of circling that game because a it's a night kick. Night kicks at Kyle Field are always always boisterous and and intense. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's like an eight p.m. Central Time kick. So there's a lot of anticipation for the game because I think a lot of 
A&M fans feel like that's going to be the first test for this team. Mm-hmm. They got Sam Houston, who's an FCS team, by the way, a very, very good FCS team to open it up when week one. And they've got App State, who, as you know, uh, App State can be a little sticky. They're they're definitely Almost one of the better Miami. group of five programs. <laughs> they're one of the better group of five programs out there. So yeah. Uh, but 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 all all things being equal, A and M's way more talented these teams, so they should they should win those games going away. This Miami team, obviously with a preseason top twenty five ranking coming in, uh, and a new regime and a lot of energy. Obviously, a lot of a lot of excitement around that program after Mario Cristobal took over. I think A and M fans look at this as this is a first test to really learn, hey, what's this team going to look like? And if you are going to be an SEC title contender or a playoff contender this year, this is a game you need to go win, and you need to go win, I don't want to say convincingly, but you got to win and make it look good. You've got, right. you, you've got to leave a really good impression if you're going to show yourself that to be that kind of team. But it's definitely – I think there will be some excitement because, hey, it's a Power 5 team. It's a, it's a program with a national following that, that people know about that, that has a strong history and reputation. And it's it's a night game with a with a top twenty five team in town. I mean, I think they're they're you can't get much more excited for than for things like that. And uh, you you're, they're not getting Alabama to come to this year. Then Auburn's not coming to Kyle Field this year. Those are both road games. Uh, I think the other home games are going to be of note for for A and M this year are Ole Miss and and LSU. And those are in the back end of the season. So this is the first real big big home game for them in the first half of the year. And then after this Miami game. They're away from Kyle Field for six weeks. They they have wow. a neutral side game against Arkansas. Mm-hmm. They have an open date in between, and then they have a bunch of road games. So they don't after this Miami game, they do not come back and play a home game at Kyle Field. I believe till the last week of October. So wow. uh, so this is going to be like uh, this is going to be like a little sampling for them, and then you're not going to see them see them back at Kyle Field for a while. So I think there's plenty of anticipation for this one from an A and M standpoint. How much pressure is there on Jimbo Fisher to deliver this year? I don't think it's so much this year. I think, like I said, I had said at the top, I think next year is the year to me. I, it's not to say that they can't. They're a preseason top 10 team, and they should be better. I think you should see some improvement this year. Eight and four is not not good this year if you do that. You should be, a, in my opinion, a 10-win team. You know, if things break tough with the schedule of your nine and three, I can, I can kind of see that. But to me, when you bring in this type of class, you've brought in four straight top 10 classes, You've got now you've shored up depth at quarterback. You get the offensive line is getting better. You've gone through a lot of those growing pains and everything that he's asked for in his program, he's gotten. So we are coming to that point where, hey, it is time to deliver. I don't I don't think it's championship or bust expectations this year. I think it's, hey, let's would we like to? Yes. Is that our hope? Absolutely. But is the world going to end if we don't get to the playoff this year? No. I think next year is more of the year that you do that because you get this freshman class in for a full year. You've got whoever your starting quarterback is, which this year it's Haynes King. He's got a year under his belt now. That offensive line has grown a little bit more. So, And you're, you're in your second year of, of your defense coordinator, ostensibly, if, if DJ Durkin's still around in a year, which I would assume he would be. All those things are in place. So not to say that that's not in place now to make a run, but I think when you go to Alabama for a road game, which by the way, is going to be <laughs> very, very intense and highly anticipated after that verbal spat that Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban had back in May, uh, going there, you got to go to Auburn, you know, it's, it's good. You got Miami in the, in the non-conference. It's a tough schedule. It's not, it's not an easy schedule. And this is a program that, is you know last year they they struggled they lost to Arkansas they lost to Mississippi State Mississippi State they lost to Ole Miss uh none of those are easy games per se so that yeah. and that's part of the deal with the SEC so uh, 
again, I, I think if if you told AM fans, hey, they go 10 and 2 this year, I think a lot of them would take that. I'd say, hey, 10 and 2, good solid season. You built off, you improved off last year, and now let's go make the run in 23. So I, I say that all to say that I don't think Jimbo's under a ton of pressure this year. I think it's more next year is kind of more the year. Just show some improvement. Now, if if you are eight and four again this year, yeah, you're gonna have a lot of people looking around. But all that said, he's got a guaranteed contract for the next 10 years. So it's not yeah. like they can do anything. <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, so, just, just like Mario. Yeah. It's, I know, it's not, it's not, you're going to run them off because right. I mean, they, they owe him $95 million. So, uh, so that, that is the nature of this thing. So they're, they're Jimbo and Texas A&M are going to be together for a while. And once he bypassed that, the chance to go to LSU last year, that pretty much told me that he's content because, because if there was a job that I thought he would have considered, it would have been that one. But, but I think he's probably going to be pretty content for a while. So uh, they just got to keep recruiting at a high level, and they get they they've got to start making more serious runs, uh, like they did in 2020 when they went nine and one, and uh, you know they they uh, they were in the cusp and right on the outside of the college football playoff. They got to get back to that pretty soon within the next year or two. Can't let you get get out of here without talking a little bit about Texas, um, just because of what they've been doing on the trail and. The excitement level around that program, uh, fourth most talented team, I think, in the country when it comes to blue chip ratio, right, right in front of AM. Uh, and and obviously Quinn Ewers quarterback. Um, how how's uh how's that team gonna shape up this year? What's your expectation for them? I think the thing for them is just get on the right side of five hundred. Just show some improvement. That's it. Because last year was such a disaster. The the six game losing streak, going five and seven, losing to Kansas. Texas has just got to get back to not being a punchline. That's that's really, I think, the baseline for them. Overall, this is not a perfect team. I think Quinn is super talented. You watch him throw the ball, you understand why he was ranked as the number one recruit in the country, the number one quarterback in the country. Uh, but he hasn't thrown a live pass at a game since 2020, you know, because he reclassified. He went and rolled Ohio State last year. He handed off the ball twice. That was the extent of his live game action last year. So I think there's going to be some growing pains there, but you've got B. John Robinson in the backfield. You've got Xavier Worthy at receiver. Uh, the, the growing pains are going to be up front. The offensive line, you're probably going to start a couple freshmen, uh, true freshmen. That's, that's as we were just talking about with AM, that's a sticky proposition. You're going to, it's going to be tough a little bit. Uh, that Alabama game is going to be a, a real eye opener in week two. And I think that's, we're going to learn a lot about that team. Defensively, they've got to get better uh, in terms of stopping the run, they've got to get better. As a pass rushing unit, they they were not uh, defensive coordinator Pete Kukowski said it when he was asked about the pass rush. He's like, "What pass rush? It was non-existent last year." So they've <laughs> got to get better at that. Now, to Sark's credit, they have recruited really heavily on the line of scrimmage. They brought in seven offensive linemen and eight defensive linemen in this last class. He knows what they're going to have to look like when they get to the SEC because he's been there. But it's going to take time. I, I I I wouldn't expect this team to be a Big Twelve title contender this year. If they are, that's a that's a huge surprise, and I think that's. That'd be a great, great step for Texas. But I think even if you get back to just get back to eight and four, that would be a huge next step for them and then get you set up for, okay, maybe in 23, you can start getting closer to being back a Big 12 title contender and start getting this roster ready for whenever it is you go to the SEC, whether it's 24 or it's 25, whenever that may be. They've got to get this roster right. But overall, I think it's a lot of talent. They have brought in a lot of talent, but it's a really young team. And and as I, like I said, I think there's going to be some growing pains here and there. So uh, overall, I think I, I, I they're not in the top 25 in the AP poll, and I, I don't think they should be. They'll need to earn their way there. But uh, but I think this is a team that has a good mix of young talent 
in it and, and has some potential down the road if they're able to keep some stability in the coaching staff and, and be able to st- keep some stability on the roster. All right. Um, Miami has tried recruiting the state of Texas. They've had some of their elite kids here. Obviously playing well against Texas A&M, uh, I think could probably go a long way in helping them with some inroads. Have you heard any Miami chatter from any of the kids out there? Do you think do you think they got a chance to get any of these kids? Uh, I mean, not not as much because I think so much of this state has become an SEC state, uh, mm-hmm. especially now that Texas and Oklahoma are going to go there. And I, that's going to be the fascinating dynamic to me is A&M moving to the SEC 10 years ago changed the landscape because this was mostly a Big 12 state. And then it became more of an SEC state when A&M got there because it opened the door. I mean, Alabama had come in anyway, but it opened the door for the old misses and the Mississippi states of the world. Now, with Texas and Oklahoma going, I think it's going to be it's going to be heavily an SEC state, at least for the elite kids. Uh, and then the Big 12, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But I, I think Miami is one of those programs that because of its reputation, because of its history, uh, and some of the buzz that we've talked about with with Mario, I think they're always going to be somebody that's in the mix. And that's someone that kids are going to know because kids kids know about the U, they know about the history. Uh, and and it, it's... It's got a it's got a certain cool factor to it, you know, and so I think that's something that they can certainly leverage at Miami, and and it, I think I think in Texas, yeah, you're not, I don't think you're ever going to rule that out. And recruiting is so national now that uh, you, you can, it seems like because of how much we've closed the communication gap, that that sometimes it's easier for some of these Texas kids to go out of state and for any kid anywhere to go out of state because. It doesn't seem as far when they're in your phone all the time, when they're DMing you all these graphics, when you're seeing all the videos and all that stuff. It does. I guess the the distance doesn't feel real until you actually get on the plane. But but uh, but I think I I don't think Miami will have a problem recruiting Texas. It's just it it is difficult to get in here right now just because, like I said, the A&M is doing a really bang up job. Texas obviously has raised its level uh, and the SEC is in here a lot. Ohio State comes in here a lot. So so it is. It is very saturated in this state. Uh, I mean, we've got 12 FBS programs. We're about to have a sixth power five program when Houston moves to the Big 12 next year. It is a, There's a lot of schools in here and a lot of schools recruiting here. LSU, obviously, is right next door. They come in here a lot. So, so it is a challenge to do it. And you have to have, I think, a concerted effort to do it. You have to have a staff that's willing to play ball with the Texas high school coaches and build those strong relationships with those guys because – they matter a whole lot in, in, in the ecosystem, the recruiting ecosystem here. So it just takes a certain effort. You can spot recruit, and there's always going to be schools that do it, uh, and that's possible. But I think if you really want to get some guys out of here, you got to definitely invest some some time and energy into it. All right. Uh, last one, we're out of here. Uh, I'm going to give you $100. And I'm going to put you on the spot. you got to put $100 on Texas, Texas A&M, or one of these other schools in Texas. Who's winning the national championship first? A&M. Just the talent. It's the talent level right now. Uh, and the thing is, is the road is harder for AM because they're in the SEC West. Uh, but when I look at the talent and I go watch AM on the field, they look, they're starting to look like what Alabama looks like or LSU or Georgia from a roster standpoint. When you see the linemen and you see just the body types. And to me, at some point, if you continue to recruit at that level, at some point it's going to pay off. So, so they to me, they're the closest of the group. Uh, I wouldn't rule out Baylor, uh, although some of that plays into what does the playoff structure look like yeah. and, and what is the future of the Big 12 and, and what does that schedule strength mean. But you saw what Baylor did last year with Dave Aranda, and I think they're doing a really, really good job of uh, 
they they become they've become a consistent program. We we don't talk about Baylor a lot nationally, yeah. but they've won the Big Twelve three times in the last ten years. They've had five or six double digit win seasons. Two thousand eleven. They've been way more consistent than than Texas or Texas A and M in that span. So so they're a team that I wouldn't rule out, but they're they're in an interesting spot because they're in upper part of the Big Twelve. But what is the Big Twelve going to mean in a few years when it comes to the playoff? Who knows? And then Texas. Texas is going to be able to recruit the talent, but they always have been able to recruit the talent. That's the big question. When is it going to translate and when are they going to get it all together? But but of all those three teams, yeah, I, I, right now I'd pick Texas A&M just on the way they're recruiting. All right. Sam, listen, I appreciate it, man. I know you're a busy guy, so uh, you shared gave us more than half an hour here to talk uh, about Miami A&M. Maybe we check back in with you the game, you know, the, the week of the game to see how things kind of go after the first two weeks. But I wanted our, our, our listeners, our, our Miami fans, to get a better idea about this A&M team that uh, they're all looking forward to, to watching take on the Hurricanes. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. We're looking forward to seeing you. All right, man. Thanks. I'm the new-